Last week we talked about Adonijah and his attempt to take the throne and how David uh, immediately responded by, having, by proclaiming that Solomon was the king and, and putting, getting him on the throne. And, and, uh, and we realized at the end of the, the lesson last week, we talked about how Adonijah and Joab and, and uh, Abiathar the priest, they were all together with, with, uh, with Adonijah, the, David's son, and they thought everything was going well. And then somebody runs in and says, David has just made Solomon king. And at that moment, Adonijah knew that the gig was up and that was where we cut it off. So we're going to talk about what happened after that, after David made Solomon king. And we talk, you know, when you talk about David, we've learned so much about him. And he, and he deserved all the honors heaped on him in his long, full life. And he was, as we've said before, he was truly a master of of, of multiple trades. He was a very gifted in so many different areas as a shepherd, a musician, a poet, a giant slayer, a warrior, a mercenary, a military strategist. He was a, a great politician. He was a spiritual leader and, and he was king. And now in the last few moments of his life, uh, David knew he had one more grim task that he could, avoid, that he could not avoid. And we're going to be talking tonight uh, the beginning of the lesson tonight, we're going to be talking about David's conversation as he's on his deathbed talking with Solomon about what he needed to do as he started his reign. So uh, we talk about David and, and during all of these times, he, you know, uh, he had this one task he couldn't avoid. We're going to talk about, but uh, since that day, you know, or, uh, almost 60 years before this time when David's about to pass away, when the prophet Samuel had, had in essence, kind of stolen his, his boyhood, the Israel had been on, at the forefront of David's mind. Whether he was in Bethlehem or Gibeah or Naoth or Adullam or Gath or Ziklag or Hebron or Jer Jerusalem, and those were all significant places where David lived, David had always been concerned with two things, serving God and serving Israel. And, and he was called a man after God's own heart. And, and a man after God's own heart does not change or forget his lifelong motivations just because he's, he's drawing his final breaths. And the second king of Israel, David, had devoted a lifetime of service to expanding Israel's borders and to annihilating enemies, Israel's enemies, to suppressing mutinies and ensuring God's blessings on this young nation. And now as he lay dying, he knew that there were enemies, and they were ruthless and powerful enemies, that Solomon was going to have to deal with. And it fell on David to give the orders. It's actually kind of hard to listen to David speak on his deathbed as he talks about his, you know, this is a deathbed hit list. It's sort of like, uh, like listening to, you know, the dying Don Corleone in The Godfather passing to his son Michael the names of everyone that who needed to disappear. You know, it's kind of like that. And David tells Solomon in no uncertain terms who must be dealt with. And David did what he had to do. And, in, in, and Solomon was well warned before David ever passed away. So even so, now we, we left you hanging when Adonijah found out that Solomon was now king. And he knew the gig was up. He knew he didn't know what was going to happen. But King Solomon's first act as king was to spare the life of his brother Adonijah. And he said, if he proves himself to be loyal, 
he can continue to live. And he basically looked at his brother Adonijah, really his half-brother, because he had a different mom, but was uh, father, both of them were fathered by King David. He said, go home and stay out of trouble. Keep your nose clean. He said, if I even catch a whiff of anything besides complete loyalty to your new king, there will be no more mercy extended your way. You, you are forever on the shortest of leashes that you can ever imagine. So Adonijah was given a chance to redeem himself. And what follows after that event was the, the rest of David's list. And he starts off, we're in 1 Kings chapter 2 on this part. It starts off by saying this, you know, what, you know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in a time of peace Staining his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think best. But listen to what David said. But don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. So he, he, he really, his instructions for Solomon regarding Joab, his top general, and who was also his nephew, was, was both open and very clear. It was open in the sense he said, you do with him what you think best. But it was also very clear, he said, at the same time, you do with him now what you think is best. Just make sure that, by the t that he does not live long enough to retire happy somewhere off in the country. Because of the things that he did. He specifically mentioned the two different moments when he had murdered two of David's generals without David's knowledge, without his permission. And, uh, and, and you, you know, you, you wonder yourself, now why would David wait? Why wouldn't he deal with it back then? Well, because... David was a smart enough man to know, I need Joab to be able to deal with these issues. Now he's passing away. He's saying, okay, Joab's, uh, his, his time is done. Now the time is going to come that he needs to pay for what he did during, during my reign. And so uh, he tells him this. He says, uh, just make sure before he's old, uh, you know, don't let him retire and, and live as a peaceful old man. Make sure that he's dead. But here's the thing. One of, the, one of the great laws of the universe has always been, if you live by the sword, you what? You die by the sword. And since David's early days with his, with his fighting men out in the wilderness, who, answer this question, who has been his bloodiest soldier? It was Joab. That's right. Since we're talking about him, that's an easy guess, right? Uh, it was Joab, without a doubt. Joab had killed ruthlessly and without remorse, not only in battle, but also in murderous feuds. Uh, you remember uh, with Abner, the, the first general that he killed, you remember how he lured him out of the city of refuge and, and uh, you know, said, hey, Abner, I got something for you. And he comes outside the city and here it is. And he stabs him and, you know, slices him open right there. And he had, he had done those kind of things. Sometimes it was at David's command because he was the one who followed David's command to make sure that Uriah the Hittite was killed on the battlefield. Other times he acted despite his king's commands as he did with Abner, as I just mentioned, as he did with Absalom. He, he, he specifically had been told, don't hurt Absalom, and he's the one who killed him. Now it needed to be done, but he did it. And then there was Amasa, the other general. You remember he's the one that, that when uh, he was late to meet David with his army, 
And, they, and he went up, uh, Joab went up to meet him and he grabbed him by the beard as if to bring him down and greet him with a kiss. And then instead of greeting with a kiss, he pulled his beard down and sliced him open to where his guts flowed out on the road. And these were the kind of things that he had done. And now it was Joab's turn. You know, you remember the, remember the old song from the Lion King, The Circle of Life? Well, you know, it's time, Joab, because now you, you, you live by the sword by killing these people. Now it's your time to die by the sword. And, and it's strange for Joab, who had served David for so long, to, to wind up number one on, on his execution list. Uh, was, was there no mercy for David's own nephew? Well, the problem was this. Joab himself had made it clear that he was a dire threat to, to Solomon's kingdom. Uh, it, Joab had already tipped his hand. His, his alliance with Adonijah was his death warrant. Now, he, he didn't back up Absalom. He, he didn't uh, to side with him. But now when Adonijah came along... Apparently, Joab thought that Adonijah would be a better king than Solomon. So he was in on the plot to make sure Adonijah became, became king instead of Solomon. And so when he allied himself with Adonijah, who would, would have killed Solomon, would have killed Solomon's mother Bathsheba. Uh, now David knew that if at, if at any point during Solomon's reign, another opportunity presented itself for Joab to help someone else take the throne away by mutiny that the general would do so at the blink of an eye. So Joab had to go. And, and, and Joab, now he heard about this. He heard, there's a hit out on me. There's a price on my head. Well, it wasn't really a price because nobody's going to get paid. But there's a hit out on him. And Joab, he begins to seek sanctuary. He, he goes to the tabernacle. And the Bible says that he goes inside there and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. And if you don't know what that is, uh, as you went into the tabernacle, the, the altar was a place, obviously, where they would present uh, sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, and they would put them on there, and the altar had been anointed with blood, and, and on each corner of, the, of the, uh, the four corners of that, there was, this, there was uh, uh, wood or something that was overlaid with gold, and it, it resembled horns. They were on there. We don't, we don't really know what they were used for. It may have been that they used those to tie the sacrifices down. We don't really know Exactly, but it was part of the plans that God gave the Israelites as far as how to build the altar. And so it became a place that was more than once in the, in the Old Testament uh, where somebody would run in there and they'd grab hold of the horns of the altar and say, this is my sanctuary, this is the safe place. And so Joab, he heard about it, he thought, okay, where can I go to find some safety? So he runs in to the tabernacle and, and, and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar and, and not wanting to to shed blood inside God's tabernacle. Solomon, he sends his father's former advisor, whose name was Benaiah, he sends him after Joab, and he goes into the tabernacle, and he says, Joab, you've got to come out. And Joab looks at Benaiah and says, no way. He, he says, I am not leaving this place. He said, I will die here as an old man if I have to. If the king wants me dead, he's just going to have to kill me right here. Well, I mean, surely Joab, he, he assumed that the tender young King Solomon would lack the nerve to kill anyone, especially a relative 
who, uh, who's grabbed hold of the horns of the altar inside the tabernacle. Maybe he thought by doing this, maybe he thought he could, he could get Adonijah's deal. Because Adonijah said, he said, okay, you can live here, you can, you can continue to live, just don't cause any more trouble. Maybe he thought, I'm going to go for Adonijah's deal and, and, and I'll take early reti- retirement and move to Galilee. You know, that's what he's thinking maybe. Benaiah returns to Solomon and explains the situation. He says, I, I wasn't so sure about taking a person's life there on, uh, on the altar inside their tabernacle. All the priests were, were standing around watching. But he told me to tell you that if you want him dead, you're going to have to do it right there. And without hesitation, Solomon replies, well, do what Joab said. Do as he says. Kill him right there on that altar. You know, he's, th- he's thinking long ago he thought he had to lure, you know, the pardoned Abner out of the city of refuge in order to kill him. And he thinks that I'm going to have the same constraint. I don't. Gut him right there. And in what must have been a surprise for everyone, especially for the refuge-seeking Joab, Benaiah walks right into the tabernacle and plunges his sword into the general. And for over 40 years, Joab had lived by the sword, and in a matter of seconds, he died by the sword. That takes us to the second person on the hit list. Verse 8 of 1 Kings 2. David says, And remember Shimei, son of Gera, the man from Behurim in Benjamin. Anybody remember who Shimei was? We talked about him a few weeks ago. He was the one, when David was fleeing Jerusalem to get away from Absalom and his army, Shimei was the one who who cursed him and started throwing rocks at him as he was escaping from Jerusalem. And David's men said, let's kill him. And David said, no, no, we got to wait. Maybe he's hearing from God. Maybe I am. Maybe we need to, you know, and, and he made a vow to Shimei at that point in time. He said, before God, I promise you, I will, I will not kill you. And that was who Shimei was. He, he says, he cursed me with a terrible curse as I was fleeing from, to, to uh, Mahanaim. Uh, When he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, I swore by the Lord that I would not kill him. But that does not make him innocent. He said, I said I wouldn't kill him, but that doesn't mean he doesn't deserve to die. He said, you are a wise man and you will know, listen to this, how to arrange a bloody death for him. (laughs) You know, it's shocking to us. You know, I mean, this is an old wound. This is a, this is a you know, petty insult from a long time ago. I remembered all those years. Is that enough to deserve death? However, you know, this scene was not merely a father and son sharing a final moment together. In essence, one thing that David was saying, I am now king of Israel again. And we said, we'll let God decide this. When God has decided it, now Shimei was on the wrong side. We're going to deal with this. But David and Solomon, you got to remember, they were kings in the early Iron Age. And they were kings who were desperately trying to hold together a newborn kingdom by their fingernails. I mean, they had gone through two civil wars. They had fought to stave off those rebellions. They, uh, the, the, a coup d'etat, which is just a, you know, a, an easy, silent rebellion, take over the throne was foiled when Solomon was hurriedly announced as David's successor. And the king's dying reasons for commanding a bloody death for, the, for this, this old curmudgeon was, was really twofold. One, Solomon had to make it clear what will happen to instigators of internal uprisings and rebellions against the king. He had to make a point. Number two, public humiliations against the person of the king cannot go unpunished forever. 
And David told Solomon, he's basically what he said, listen, I swore to the Lord that I would never kill Shimei, but nothing was ever promised about you. That's what I said, basically. As soon as I'm dead and buried, I want you to take him out for me. And, and when I needed, because when I needed support, all he had for me were curses and rocks. And he says, don't be gentle on him, son. Don't take it easy on him. But in fact, Solomon does go easy on Shimei. He, he doesn't even exile him from Jerusalem. In fact, he actually does the opposite. He puts Shimei under house arrest in Jerusalem. He said, my father wanted you dead, but that's not what I'm going to do. He said, instead, you build yourself a house here in Jerusalem and you stay put. Never, ever leave this city. If you ever so much as even cross the Kidron Valley, I will have you killed immediately. This is your second chance. There will not be a third. Well, Shimei, not surprisingly, agrees. He says, that's a great idea, King Solomon. I think that's a wonderful idea. He really had no other choice. And so he makes his permanent home in Jerusalem. But then three years later, two of Shimei's slaves escaped to the city of Gath, and he goes after them to bring them back, home, back to Jerusalem. And on this journey, on, upon returning home, David has found out. And Shimei is sent for by one of the king's messengers, and, and, and the dismayed Solomon looks at the foolish Shimei, and he says, okay, did I not say... Never leave the city or you're going to die. Is that not what I said? Well, yeah, but I came right back, your majesty. I mean, I wasn't trying to escape or anything. I, I didn't think you meant that I literally couldn't cross the, the, the Kidron Valley. I just needed to return my, return, retrieve my, my escaped slaves, and then I came right back. King Solomon says, no, I meant literally. A king means exactly what he says. He said, I tried to save your pathetic life. You chose to, to throw it away. And the king turns to Benaiah, whom he had by now had appointed to Joab's old position and says, kill him. That brings us to the person of Adonijah. Because as I said, Solomon had already chosen to give Adonijah mercy. And he said, listen, you can live, you can stay here, but you gotta, you gotta play it right. You gotta play it straight if there's any, even a sniff of disloyalty, you're gone. And uh, the, the interesting thing is, though, when you read the last words of David, really it's not that surprising. David did not give any orders concerning Adonijah when he issued his hit list. You know, here he is again, even at the end, he, he could not come to terms with, with killing or even appropriately punishing one of his own children. He had refused to do so with Amnon uh, when he raped Tamar. He had refused to do so with Absalom when, when he, uh, when he uh, killed Amnon. And it's, so it's not really surprising that he did not order Solomon to give Adonijah what he deserved. But Adonijah would learn very quickly that Solomon was not going to be easy, easily manipulated and he was not going to get off so easily as he did with his father David. Because shortly after David's death, Adonijah pays a visit to Bathsheba, the mother of the new king. Now, there's no doubt that Adonijah's, uh, had Adonijah's coup succeeded, there's no question he would have killed Solomon and he would have killed Bathsheba. So 
there's no doubt, Adonijah would be the last person Bathsheba would ever think would show up and then ask her for a favor. She says, "Have have you come to make trouble? And that's a good question, you know, asking the, her son's half-brother who had been told to behave forever or face death immediately. No, 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 no. He says just the opposite. I've come for love. I've come for love. The, the, you know, this wily politician tells her. He says, I have fallen in love with a girl and I just, I want to marry her. And as you know, I, I tried to be king, but, but that wasn't God's plan. I'm okay with that. Now, really, I am. Solomon is a wonderful king. Thankfully, I've discovered that happiness for me is not sitting on the throne, but happiness for me is in a girl because I have fallen in love with Abishag, the young lady from Shunem. Would you please ask your son, the king, if I can marry her? Anybody remember who Abishag was? We mentioned her just recently. Did not mention very much in scripture. Do you remember when King David got old and he's, his circulation was poor and he couldn't stay warm? She was the girl who lay in the bed with David to help him stay warm. Now you begin to see Adonijah, he's got something brewing here. But you know what, Bathsheba, poor Bathsheba, she was, I mean, ever the romantic, was she not? I, I, I mean, was she, while married to Uriah the Hittite, the king came calling and she was swept off her feet with, you know, by his power and his royalty and his romance. And because of romance, she had suffered misery and shame forever. The woman, everyone pointed at behind her back. And years later, she still hasn't really changed. The man who tried stealing the throne, a man who, whom she admitted with her own words would have had her killed and as his first act as king comes to her on behalf of love and her heart melts. And she, she says, yes, I'll, I'll go to my son on your behalf, Adonijah. I'll ask him to let you marry the love of your life. Well, the moment comes and, and what a scene it must have been she goes before King Solomon, says, he says, son, I, I have something to ask you. I'm here. I want to ask you on behalf of Adonijah. He's fallen in love with a girl. He needs your permission to marry her. He loves Abishag. Would you let her marry her, him? And Solomon stares at his mom in disbelief, says, mother, are you kidding me right now? Are, 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 are you serious? What are you thinking? She, he said, listen, why don't you just take the crown off my head right now and put it on Adonijah's head? And then we can invite him over and I'll give him the throne and we'll just take a long walk off a, off a cliff somewhere. Because that would be a lot easier and less painful than what would happen if I let the son of a king marry a girl who had such an intimate relationship with the former king. Because the day, mama, the day after the wedding, Adonijah and his friends would reunite with an, uh, uh, for another dinner party and they'd plan their next coup. Solomon saw straight right through it. And at this, Solomon sends for Adonijah. And he says, I showed you mercy when I should have killed you. And I won't make that mistake again, brother. I told you when we last spoke, complete loyalty or death. And he turned to Benaiah and says to him, kill this fool. And, and the Bible says in, in these things, he established his throne. Now, 
I, I want to I look at another part of this story uh, of David sitting down with Solomon and look at something from, from a little bit different angle. And because one of the things we can learn, I think it's important for us to realize that it, it's not too late to affirm those who need encouragement from you. Let, let me explain what I mean. Uh, uh, we've said many times already, David was a great king, but he failed miserably when it came to his family. He was a horrible father. Remember, we just read last week how with Adonijah, he said he never, ever uh, disciplined him or even said, why'd you do that? He let him do whatever he wanted. He was a horrible father. And he led Israel with wisdom and boldness and the perfect blend of compassion and discipline. His leadership in the home, however, was an entirely different story. His children were either, either ended up completely at odds with him, trying to kill him, trying to take the throne from him, or they were barely even mentioned in Scripture as though they were not even really an important part of the king's life. And here he is at the end of his life, in his final instructions to his son, the king, and David finally attempted to handle both Israel and family. And he began his final conversation with the son by saying this, I'm going where, this is 1 Kings chapter 2, I'm going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. I can't help but wonder how long Solomon had waited to be able to sit down with his father and hear his father say those kind of things to him. To hear his father give him instruction, to pass down wisdom, to, to, for, to have his father pay attention to him. You know, I mean, the only life that Solomon had ever known was a life of royalty to which he was born. He, he had only known a kingdom full of war and internal strife and political conspiracy and, and terrible family tensions. Solomon heard the whispers about his adulterous mother. He saw the crowds as they gathered in support of his quote, more legitimate brothers, as those said Absalom ought to be king, and others said Adonijah ought to be king. And all his life, the future builder of the temple probably longed for words of love and support and wisdom from the greatest man he ever knew, yet he barely knew his father. You know, today I was having lunch, and in the conversation, we were talking about the relationship between a father and a son, and Here's, here's what I know. Every son longs for the love and approval of his father. It doesn't matter. That father can be the most deadbeat dad that's ever lived on the face of the earth. But a son wants his father to be able to look at him and say, I love you, son, and I'm proud of you. That's what Solomon needed. But you know what? It's not just fathers and sons. Who in your life needs to hear and receive your support, your words of wisdom, your love for them. Who needs to hear that in your life? Who needs to hear from a, from a father? Who needs to hear from a mother, your, their boss, uh, their mentor, their friend? Who, needs, some, who do you know that needs to hear you say the words, take courage, stand strong in the Lord, follow God's ways? Who needs your wise instructions on first steps? As they, as, the, as they take their first steps in a new marriage or 
a new job or new responsibilities. Now, most likely, your advice is going to be a little different than David's because your, list, your, your advice is not going to be a list of those that they should kill. I, I hope that that's not, you know, all right, son, here, when you get to be a man, here are the people I want you to knock off. No, don't go that route. It's not a good way to go. But the point is, David was concerned with his son achieving the greatest success possible. And he finally, even though it was late in life, he finally sat down with his son and said, Son, this is what you need in life to succeed. Now, how much better would Solomon have been if he had received that his whole life? How much better would Absalom have been if David had sat down with him? How much better would, would Amnon have been? Maybe so many of these things could have been avoided altogether if David had learned this lesson earlier. So the question for us is, who are those people? Because there are people in your life that need to know that you believe in God's plan for their life. There are people that you, you know in your life that need your words of wisdom and they need your words of encouragement as they pursue God's heart and God's plan for their life. Because, listen, here's what I know is that God's plan for my life is always going to be bigger than what I think can happen because his plan is going to be bigger than me, bigger than my abilities, because if it's not, if it's, if it's something I can do, then he's not going to get any glory out of that. And so people need to hear from you. God's going to do great things through you. He's going to do things that you don't think that you can ever accomplish. If you'll just trust him, if you'll just walk in his ways, just the same kind of things that David said to Solomon. It's never too soon to start pouring into those people's lives. And you know what? It's never too late either. Start. Do it now. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed like David did. I, I've heard people say things, you know, uh, at funerals they say, uh, I've heard an old saying, something along the lines of, we should hand out flowers while people can still enjoy the flowers. Because you get a funeral and people send flowers and, you know, it's appreciated. It's, a, it's an act of compassion for the family. But you know what? Sometimes our words are like those flowers. People need to hear those before, before it's too late. So, you know, as we close up this whole uh, series, and I'm not almost done, don't worry. We've got a little more way to go. <laughs> but, but there's a question that, that has been asked a number of times as we've gone through this series of lessons. Uh, and I think it still remains to be fully answered. Simply put, here is the question. Knowing all that we know about David, because now we're, you know, in that chapter, after he had the conversation with Solomon, it said David died. So he's gone now. Here's the question. Why, how can David possibly called, be called a man after God's own heart? Think about all that we've learned. Imagine a jury sitting through a detailed recap of David's life, his sins, his struggles, his victories, his poems, everything he's done, and then being asked to deliberate until they can unanimously answer the question, was David truly a man after God's own heart? And consider again some of the highlights of David, some of the things that jury would hear. He killed and then posthumously circumcised 200 Philistines for a, for a bride price. 
He led a priest, he lied to a priest in order to eat holy bread, which led to the massacre of 85 priests and their families. He, he feigned madness in Gath after realizing his mistake and seeking refuge there. He slaughtered countless Amalekites, including women and children, in order to remain a top mercenary commander for the Philistines, who were the enemies of Israel. He had the Ark of the Covenant carried into Jerusalem on an ox cart instead of the, by the priest as, as God's commanded, which led to the death of, an, of a well-intentioned Israelite. He had an affair with Bathsheba, impregnated her, murdered her husband, and tried covering the whole thing up. He failed to discipline his son Amnon after Tamar's rape. He allowed Absalom to live without punishment even after he, he murdered his own brother. On his deathbed, he instructed Solomon to kill a man because years earlier he had disrespected David. At, at, at all of this, and God still called David a man after God's own heart? How can that be right? I mean, even for a Bronze Age warrior, some of these highlights of David's life are tough to read and then still acknowledge the spiritual greatness of Israel's second king. Well, to answer that, I, I want to go back to a story that we sort of skipped because I wanted to bring this in at the end of David's life. Shortly after David's last victory over the Philistines, the king decided, actually Scripture says that Satan... Uh, rose up against Israel and put it in David's heart, but he decided that he wanted a census taken of all Israel. 2 Samuel 24, 2 says, So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Take a census of all the tribes of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, so I may know how many people there are. And the, the prideful David wanted to, wanted to just revel in this number. He thought, I want to know how many people I'm actually king over, how many people I rule over. I want to know how large my armies are. I want to know what the exact numbers are. I deserve to celebrate uh, all that I've accomplished as king. And in, in a surprising display of insight and fear of God, Joab, of all people, asked David not to do this. Because God had forget, forbidden such a census for Israel. Uh, and the reason he had is because God wanted the king of Israel to, Israel to rely on him, not to try to figure out how strong he was, but to remember how strong God was. And so God had forbidden such a census in, for Israel. And the general who was normally loyal to David beyond question and hardly ever squeamish about anything, he did not want David and Israel to sin in this way or go through the punishment it would bring upon the nation. He said in 1 Chronicles 21.3, but Joab replied, May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? He warned him of all people, Joab. Despite Joab's warning and the reminder that God had forbidden Israel from numbering itself and, and basking in self-glory, David insisted on going forward and Joab re reluctantly did what he was told. Well... To no one's surprise, God was displeased with the decision to take a census and sent Gad, who was David's spiritual advisor, he sent him to rebuke David. David, who had proven multiple times that he knew when to confess and he knew how to repent, once again called out to God. He said, uh, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please, 
Forgive my guilt for doing this foolish thing. Now, was David forgiven? Did did God remove his sin as far away from David as the east is from the west as he wrote in Psalm 103? Of course he did. Our God is gracious. He is quick to forgive. But God's forgiveness does not always stop the destruction. Sin can be forgiven, but sin has consequences. And David's most destructive sin, which, by the way, his most destructive sin was not sexual lust. It wasn't the adultery with Bathsheba. It wasn't having Uriah the Hittite murdered, as many people think. David's most destructive sin was his pride. David had knowingly disobeyed God despite being warned by Joab. And though he repented, discipline came and it was harsh discipline. God told David that God would allow him to choose Israel's punishment. I read this. I can't help but read this and think about how many of you ever had your mom send you out and say, okay, you go out and you find a switch. (laughs) My mom didn't use switches. I got spanked with belts. And so instead of that, she'd say, go find a belt. And I remember one time I tried to hide all the leather belts and I came back with this little elastic thing. That's all I could find. That was a horrible mistake. Just so you know, because she's like, I'm going to find a belt. And she found one. Believe me, she found one. That's what it reminds me of. So, so God came to David, excuse me, God came to David and said, these are the choices the Lord has given you. You may choose three years of famine, three months of destruction by the sword of your enemies, or three days of severe plague as the angel of the Lord brings devastation throughout the land of Israel. Decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. So in short, I mean, he's got, this is, these are, it's a tough choice here. But David says, well, three years, you know, that's a long time. He says, he says, even, you know, even three months, I, I don't want, I, I don't want to, you know, to be overrun by enemies. I don't want the, the enemy to have anything to say. And, and, and you know, in, in this whole situation, God basically saying, you counted all these people you, you wanted to take pride in, and now I'm going to diminish that number. And so eventually, upon hearing these punishment choices, David was horrified, of course, but he also knew God's grace, even in terrible judgment, was his only chance. So he said, I don't ever want to fall into the hands of the enemy Even now, even in judgment, he said, I believe in the mercies of God. I choose the plague from the angel of the Lord. And over the next three days, a deadly plague devastated Israel. 70,000 people died. This is why I say David's greatest, most destructive sin was his pride because his pride led him to take the census and this led to the death of 70,000 people. And on the third day of the plague, this is such an interesting story. God sent a destroying angel with a sword stretched out against Jerusalem. He sent an angel with a sword pulled. He was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And just as the angel was ready to strike a crushing blow to the capital city, the merciful God whom David trusted cried out to the angel, Stop! That is enough! 
At that moment, it says in 1 Corinthians 21, at that moment, the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn, reaching out over Jerusalem. So David sees the angel. In that moment, David and the leaders with him fell on their faces in repentance. Listen, if that doesn't get you to fall on your face, nothing will. And, and David cried out to God. He said, it's, it's me. I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who called for the census. Not any of these people. Take your anger out on me. Not on these innocent of, of this crime. I plead with you, O Lord. Take my life and no one else's. At that, God spoke to David through Gad. And he said, there's a massive stone nearby owned by a Jebusite named Arana." Who, who uses it as a threshing floor. He said, I want you to go buy that spot from him and build me an altar on the rock and offer me a sacrifice from that very altar. And David quickly arose and ran to Arana's threshing floor. And the angel of the Lord, we, we, we just read, was standing over the, 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 with the sword still in hand, was standing over the threshing floor. And the Bible says that Arana and his four sons could see the angel and they went and hid. And so, and then he sees David coming and he, he says, okay, here comes the man of God. He didn't realize David was the real cause of this. And he ran and prostrated himself before David. And David came to him and he said, I need to buy this threshing floor. I need to, to, to buy the rock that it sits on. I will build an altar to the Lord on it. And I will, and, and as a sacrifice, it will bring an end to the plague. Now listen, the very sight of that terrifying angel was enough to convince Arana. And he said, you know, as you would too, take it, it's yours, whatever you need. Take my oxen, you can use them for the burnt offering. Take the wheat, use it for, for the grain offering. Whatever you need is yours, just put an end to this. But David resisted that temptation to get off easy and he wouldn't accept the gracious offer. He said, I cannot offer a sacrifice to God that didn't cost me anything. What a great principle for us to learn. He said, I must pay full price. He said, don't even cut me a good deal. I'm going to pay top dollar. And as soon as the purchase was consummated, David built an altar and sacrificed burnt offerings and, and a peace offering to the Lord. And as David prayed, the Lord sent fire down from heaven to burn up and to accept that offering and commanded the angel to put away his sword. And Jerusalem was spared. And when David saw that God had shown mercy to Jerusalem and that the plague was over, he offered another sacrifice to, on this newly built altar. And then David made a proclamation that has impacted history for over 3,000 years. Because this is the part that sometimes we miss. David said, 1 Chronicles 22.1, Then David said, This will be the location for the temple of the Lord, uh, for the temple of the Lord God, and the place of the altar for Israel's burnt offerings. This is the same place that Abraham was told to offer up Isaac. It's the same place that David offered this sacrifice to end the plague. It's the same place that the temple was built upon. It's the same place that if you go to Israel, 
and you go to see, they have the Dome of the Rock, which is the Muslim mosque, but the Temple Mount is where the temple in Jerusalem was built. All that took place. And that great stone represented perhaps David's most grievous sin, which was his pride. A sin that had caused a hideous plague that killed 70,000 people in Israel. But that very stone also became a place of worship and repentance and restoration. Through it all, you know, dodging spears thrown by his father-in-law, hiding in caves, pretending to be loyal to Gath, losing the city of Ziklag, uh, having a wife that despised him, uh, uh, having sons who tried to dethrone him, having lifelong, lifelong allies that betrayed him, having an innocent baby taken from him, going through famine and rebellions and political conspiracies and plagues through all of these things. David loved and trusted God. Now, David was not perfect, far from it. David's sins were real. But David's repentance was also real, as was his faith in the mercy of God. He wrote, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. But still the question haunts. A man after God's own heart? Really? Perhaps the best answer is found by going back to the very beginning of the story. On that day when Samuel was sent to Bethlehem by God, sent to anoint Saul's successor, directed to Jesse's house, Samuel looked uh, over all the sons whom Jesse presented, starting with the eldest and working his way down the line of ever so sturdy farm boys. Samuel studied the lineup and he was impressed. God's answer, however, was it's none of these. Now, it was not, however, that none of them measured up. It was rather that there was no physical measurement with which Samuel could size up the chosen one of God. God wanted the prophet to understand that God's view is not the same as ours. And this is where he said, one of the most famous verses, he said, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And therein lies the answer to the question. It was his heart in the eyes of God. God saw something in David's heart that he loved and he never gave up on. Somehow out of all, all of these, out there all alone in the, in the wilderness with his sheep, young David found favor in the eyes of God. I mean, what shall we call it? Faith or love? Perhaps it, it defies our Western obsession with analytics. The relationship between David and God it was like a, it was sort of like a long and stormy marriage. You know, they, they loved, they had struggles, made up, started over and struggled again, but they never, ever gave up on each other. I mean, you ask yourself, why, why David and not Saul? I mean, Saul, he sinned horribly, but so did David. Saul's heart, his innermost self, 
was bent away from God. The sinful path of Saul's life never ever got to circling back to God. He, he just, it just kept going, looping further and further and further away. And finally it ended in madness and in witchcraft and in suicide. Unlike Saul, the trajectory of David's whole life was Godward. Even in sin, even in failure, that, that Godward momentum always kept David from the abyss. David trusted God. There was never a point in David's life that he did not believe in God, that he did not trust him for the answer to carry him through. David never gave up on God, and he believed that God would never give up on him. And you know, we who are so quick to judge each other, we're also delighted to judge the likes of David. God's favor on David's life disturbs us. It upsets our theological and legalistic apple carts. We don't like this. It, it surely tempts us to argue with God, to, to whine about the divine fascination with this not-so-holy king of Israel. Look at him, Lord, we want to complain. Look at what he did. Look at how he sinned. It's right there in the Bible. Look at his life. What did you see in him? And the Lord answers, that's just it. I saw in him. You can see David's sins, he says. So did I. And he suffered for them. You see his life from the outside. But I saw in him. I saw the heart of my servant David and I knew he had a heart that was after my heart. And I never forgot that. He's, the Lord would say, sometimes David forgot, but I never did. Now let that be the lesson we take from David's life. There's one thing that I hold on to reading David's life is that when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. God will never give up on us and he will never give up on those whom we love. He is relentless in his pursuit of us. And we can say as David said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank God for his never ending mercy and grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for recording the story of David.